This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Thomas Castelli. Thomas is a CPA and a real estate taxation expert. Today, we're covering specific knowledge for passive real estate investors as it pertains to potential tax implications and advantages from passive real estate investing. We talk about the K-1, which is the key tax form that passive real estate investors receive. We talk about self-directed retirement account investing and potential tax implications there and so much more. But remember, this is just education, right? We're covering knowledge here, but if you need specific tax advice and guidance, you need to go speak with a tax professional one-on-one and cover your specific situation for that advice. Remember, this is education. This is not advice. Go speak with a professional. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lotes. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially partnering with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Now, let's get with Thomas. Thomas, thanks for joining us. Could you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and how you help people with their taxes in real estate? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me here today. I'm a, it's an honor to be here. So yeah, so my name is Thomas Costelli. I'm a CPA and I'm a tax strategist. I help real estate investors keep more of their hard-earned dollars in their pockets and out of the government through tax planning. So uh, basically what I do is I help people. I take a look at their situation, say, well, here's where you are today. Here's everything you have going on. Here's what you can do to reduce taxes. That's kind of what I do in a nutshell. Um, and uh, really how I got to this point was when I was in college, I was going to school for accounting and I kind of realized, I'm like, hey, you know, this nine to five grind is not going to get me to really where I want to go. Uh, so what will? So I picked up, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad and the rabbit hole from there goes pretty deep. And many of the books you have on your bookshelf, I have I have read. And um, basically, I realized that real estate was a common a common thread through most wealthy people. So. From there, I started going to different events, and I eventually met a group of people who were doing a three-day multifamily weekend, syndication weekend, went to the weekend, uh, learned everything about syndication, fell in love with the model, started going to their monthly events, started met a mentor, uh, started investing with him as a limited partner. He said, if you find me a deal, we'll do a deal. We'll, we'll syndicate it. So I found a deal. We syndicated it, um, and uh, that since went full cycle, and now I invest as a limited partner. So uh, kind of... Uh, what I do now with taxes kind of allow me to marry my passion for real estate with taxes and uh, help people, you know, use real estate and the tax code to minimize the tax they pay. Great. So you're seeing all angles of the passive real estate wealth generation space. So let's start off just just talking about K1s, right? K1s a tax form that investors and syndications get. Maybe we can highlight some of the um, the most important things we need to know about a K-1, because that first K-1 that you get, I think maybe we all remember it, can be very daunting if you're not used to seeing complicated tax forms like that. So let's talk K-1s a little bit and your thoughts about you know what people don't know about the K-1s before they receive one. Yeah. So if you're first, if, if you're new into the, the realm of real estate investing, uh, many times you're investing in a partnership and partnerships don't pay taxes. Um, they they distribute form K-1s, which shows each partner's share of income, losses, deductions, credits, pretty much everything you need to know about your share of the partnership gets reported on that form K-1. 
So uh, you usually will receive that. The deadline for that is March 15th, but in many cases, uh, partnership tax returns are extended. It's actually, I know a lot of people who just get into this space, uh, maybe you've been investing in brokerage accounts your entire life up until your first investment, and you're like, and you've been used to filing your tax returns by 415, by you know April 15th. Now all of a sudden you're like, wait, I have to extend my tax return. A lot of people get like shaken up by that. But first of all, extending a partnership tax return to give the CPAs, the tax professionals, and the sponsors of these deals and whoever's running the deal more time to get the information in is actually very common and actually could be better. In some cases, you get a better product at the end of the day. Um, and then also extending your tax return is also, there's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly fine. People extend tax returns all the time. I've been extending my tax return every year since like 2014. So it's it's not that big of a deal. But anyway, back to the K-1. The K-1 is the form that reports your share of everything. So right, you're going to have, depending on the type of investments you're investing in, if you're investing in real estate, box two of that form K-1 is going to be one of the more important boxes that's going to show your share of the rental income or loss from the partnership. In many cases, you're going to have a loss, especially in the first year, thanks to depreciation. And if you're in a value-add uh, opportunity, there's usually a lot of repairs, maintenance, and improvements going on, uh, perhaps units being turned, uh, the property might be being stabilized. So that leads to losses typically in the first year, and that can kind of continue on, but doesn't necessarily mean that you're losing money. Another big thing about the K-1 I think is important for people to understand is that you pay tax on the amount of income or the amount of income that the partnership that you're allocated in the partnership, not necessarily your distributions. So you might be getting distributions from your partnership, and you might, but in box two, for example, you might have a loss. So that means you're not typically paying taxes. A lot of people kind of get that confused. They say, "Well, you know, I got you know ten thousand dollars from this partnership this year, but I didn't, you know, how much am I paying taxes on that?" Well, look at box two of your form K1 and that will tell you, you know, typically while the deal's active how much taxes you're paying. Now, there's some other boxes that are relevant. Box 1 is ordinary business income. Sometimes you might have uh, some income or loss on that form even in a real estate deal due, due to various things. Or if you're investing in a limited partnership that's not a real estate deal, you might have income or loss on that box 1. So, those are the two biggest boxes. You might also have income or loss on box income rather, excuse me, on box five, which is the interest income box, because your the partnership might have bank accounts that are earning interest or might have debt that's earning interest in some way, shape, or form. So that's not uncommon. Like don't get you know, don't it's not crazy to see. Now when you sell the, the property is sold, you'll see um, it, numbers come in box nine A and perhaps nine C and ten depending on the type of investments you are in. So that you will typically see when you when that deal is sold or in the final year of that opportunity. So those are kind of the big, big things from the K-1. Uh, there's going to be some other things you might see in box 20, and that's usually detailed out in the notes. Uh, the, other, the other big thing, I guess, to know in there is going to be L, box L, or you know, the, the box L, your partnership capital account. That's going to keep track of your basis in the partnership, and that can be important for uh, determining whether or not you are going to pay tax on the distributions. If your distributions are ex in excess of the basis you have, you might have to pay tax on it. But that's relatively uncommon. It could happen. But, I mean, that's kind of what to know about the K-1 in, in a nutshell. Great. So covering a lot of really important things there. And 
the first time that we need to file an extension on our taxes is quite scary. I remember my first time and I was a little bit afraid and now it's just common practice, have to do it every right. year, just let my my CPA know. Uh, I think another kind of scary thing here is is for those who are coming from maybe a brokerage investing background, a W-2, and maybe they've been preparing their taxes on their own through a software program that we're not going to name, but everybody's right. you know well aware of because they can be litigious. K-1s are kind of another animal. In my opinion, we need to really start working with a, a tax professional who who can help us through these situations because it's very difficult to file that more complicated return through those programs. So as far as finding a CPA or a tax professional who is experienced in this space, who understands some of the nuances of the K-1 tax form and everything, I'm sure you have a lot of people coming to you asking you, trying to vet you and your experience in this space, what are some of the good questions that people are asking you to vet you and your service as a CPA tax professional in this space? Yeah, that's a great question. Like, you know, to be transparent, we have, we have a really good, like, we have a really good uh, marketing. So most people kind of fit, find us, like figure out that we're good, but good questions. People ask, you know, how much, like, how many investors do you have that you're filing K-1s for? How many real estate investors do you work with? Um, those are good questions to be asking. You know, do you, have, do you have clients who are in my position who are doing what I am doing? Um, do you have testimonials? Do you have references that you could provide? These are things that you should be asking when you're vetting a CPA, right? Like, here's the thing. When you're, if you're just have that W-2 or that brokerage, very easy. You could do it yourself. You could go to any Joe Blow CPA on the block. But when you get into real estate, things are, real estate is one of the more complicated areas of the tax code. There's a lot going on and there's a lot that can be missed. So really what you want to do when you're searching for a CPA is find out, A, are they working with real estate investors? B, are they working with real estate investors that invest in syndicates and funds? If that's your primary investment strategy, right? Do they do they understand K ones? Do they invest? You know, do they invest? Not necessarily an indicator, but it can help, right? Um, those are the biggest things. It, it's it's just do they work in real estate? Do they understand K ones? And do they have uh, proof that they do? That's kind of the topic three things that I'd be looking for if I was looking for a CPA today. Okay, so how much? back and forth, if you will, do you expect from one of your clients? And I'll, I'll add some color to that question from my personal experience. So I have a tax preparer, somebody that does my taxes, and um, he made a mistake one year. He overreported my income by about $30,000 through just a typographical error, honestly, a transpositional issue, and ended up overpaying both my federal and state taxes by probably a combined, I don't know, ten or $12,000, something like that. But I only discovered that mistake a couple of months after he had already filed my taxes and I had paid it and everything. So going back and you know, kind of fixing that mistake has been a, a huge headache, right? Trying to get money right. back from the government when you overpaid. So do you expect or, or kind of anticipate your clients to really look over your work before it's submitted? Like how common is that? Well, well, let me, let me, let me say this. Um, as a taxpayer, it is your responsibility. Your tax returns are still your responsibility, even if yes. you have a CPA or tax professional prepare your return. So just, 
just know that. Now, what we do is we actually review the returns with our clients. We either send them a video walking them through their return or they'll schedule a call and we'll actually you know, live walk them through their returns so that they understand what what's going into their returns and they can review the numbers for themselves. Um, that's that's kind of what we do. But I would encourage anybody, you know, if you're working with a CPA who does not do that, to review your return before signing it, review your return before submitting it, and make sure at least, at the very least, the key items are being reported, right? So don't tell anybody this, but uh, I don't file my own tax returns anymore. I actually just delegated that task away because I have just other things to do at this point. But when I get my tax return back, the first thing I'm doing is, is the income correct? Is my... Uh, are they reporting my losses from my K-1s correctly on the tax return? Are they are they bringing it forward on Form 8582, which is where your passive losses are reported and are carried forward to the next year? So you want to look at all the key areas of your return, especially the major ones where there could be major discrepancies, and make sure that it's accurate, right? And if it's not accurate, you want to go back to your CPA before, fi- ideally before filing it and saying, hey, look, you know, this is wrong. Here's the correct information. And they could correct it before you file. Now, uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say here is make sure you review your return before you file it. And if you do end up catching a mistake after the fact, it's not uncommon for that to happen. I mean, we we minimize the mistakes as much as we can in, in our firm to make sure this type of stuff doesn't happen. But, um, you know, occasionally things slip through the cracks. And uh, just make sure you're prudent and uh, that, that you make sure that your CPA is timely with it. Because to your point, once you pay the government trying to wait for that refund – is is painful people are waiting sometimes months or even there's some people even waiting a year for to get their refund back so uh, being proactive making sure you're giving your cpa the right information up front making sure they have your information and confirming with that before they start preparing your tax return can be key and then ultimately when they send you your draft of your tax return reviewing it uh especially the major components of it uh before signing off on it uh will help you go a long way in protecting that downside yeah, I in for my situation, trust me, I'm grateful that I overpaid the government rather than underpaid the government, but right. I'd rather just pay exactly what I need to. So we're still working through that, but important lesson learned in my case to really review yeah. that work before we submit it. And one one more thing I could throw in there and depending on your situation, if you're self-employed, you own your own business or you have a lot of real estate investments that you expect you might be paying taxes on, it doesn't hurt to work with your CPA to get a projection done throughout the year. Because to your point, um, there there's some cases like you don't want to underpay the government because you, pen- you get penalties for underpayment and you get interest and interest rates are rising and it's not as inexpensive as it was a few years ago just to be like whatever. Um, so what can help is quarterly estimates. You go to your CPA and you say, here's the information that you're getting throughout the year, your expectations of income, and they can create estimates for you. You make those quarterly estimates and actually through that process, they're actually kind of updating your tax returns throughout the year, and it minimizes the, um, the, the chances for mistakes when it comes time to actually doing your tax return. Great. So there's this idea of, and a phrase of, not letting the tax tail wag the dog, not making decisions which holistically are poor decisions solely driven by potential tax benefits. Do you see people kind of making tax tail wagging the dog type of decisions? I mean, how should we think about it as a a holistic decision, not just solely motivated by a potential tax benefit? Because 
well, if we lose money, then we're not paying any taxes, but we'd rather make money and not pay taxes or defer our taxes. So what do you see there as far as people letting a tax tail wag the dog? Yeah, I mean, people will rush into investments to reduce taxes, right? Like we, I'll give you a few examples of that happening. So one strategy is called the lazy 1031 exchange. And the way that this works is say you an investment is sold, whether a property you own, you sell it, or you're invested in a syndicate or fund and the properties are sold and you expect a capital gain. What you can do is you can go invest in another property or another syndicate that might be using cost segregation studies and bonus depreciation to pass a loss to you on your K-1 for that year. Now, that loss can offset the capital gains and depreciation recapture from the property that was sold. So what you'll see is sometimes people have large gains. They maybe weren't able to do a 1031 exchange, like a full real 1031 exchange for whatever reason, and they're looking at this other strategy. What they'll do is they might invest in a property that's not the best property from an investment perspective just because they need the losses and want to save on taxes. And if that property doesn't meet their investment criteria or is otherwise just a poor investment, well, now you're sinking money into an investment that does not really work um, just for the tax benefits. And that is kind of an example of letting the tax tail wag the dog. Uh, Another version of it is buying property solely for the tax benefits. So um, there's this strategy called the short-term rental loophole that's out there. You buy short-term rentals, uh, you meet certain requirements, and the losses can offset your W-2 or active income. And people are rushing out. They're buying these Airbnb properties. Sometimes the properties aren't in an appropriate market for a short-term rental. So they end up not being able to make money on it, have to sell it prematurely, and that can cause issues. Or they're not really into running properties on an active basis. To run a short-term rental, you have people coming and going on a weekly basis in some cases, and there's unit turns, and it's hospitality, and you have to have good customer service. And some people, it's not passive, and some people just want it to be. And so they make these investments and it ends up being disaster for them. They might lose money or just not good for their lifestyle. Like those are examples of letting the tax tail wag the dog. The way I look at it is this, is if you want to look at what is your investment criteria, why are you making these investments, and then let the tax like kind of play within the role there. Like I'm not going to go, for example, I'm not going to go make an investment because the taxes are so good. I want to make the investment because that's a good investment. And then, okay, how can I minimize taxes from there? Right. It's, it's, if it's a factor in my decision-making or should be a factor in your decision-making, not the, not, should not overweight. It should not be overweighted, I guess, in your, your, your investment decision-making. Yeah, absolutely. So before we go to the three questions, I ask every guest in the show, I want to talk about another kind of niche area in this space that becomes relevant. And I think folks oftentimes learn about on the back end. So specifically self-directed retirement account investing and UBIT unrelated business income tax. A lot of times folks, you know, again, find out about that on the back end after they've invested in a deal using a self-directed IRA, which is something that I've done too. I'm not bringing down self-directed IRAs is just understanding what you're getting into right, is the important right. thing. So let's talk UBIT a little bit, getting a 990T prepared and everything like that and your thoughts around those. Yeah. So um, I have some actual interesting thoughts. I've invested through a self-directed IRA as well. So I, I have personal experience doing it. So first things first, like the thing I've seen about, so the way it works is basically there's something called unrelated debt financed income. So if you invest through an IRA, and you, you purchase an asset within the IRA, say a rental property that is financed with debt. And it's not just if you purchase it, if you invest in a syndicate that does this, 
um, then a portion of that income or gain is going to be considered UDFI, and that's going to be subject to the UBIT tax. Now, in my experience, it's been very minimal. Like most people aren't paying that much UBIT or any UBIT throughout the life of the deal. It's when the deal is sold at the end, when there's a capital gain, that's when you might see UBIT. Now, in most cases, it's maybe reduced the return on investment by a few percentage points. Nothing too crazy. Again, in my experience, not saying it could be it could be different, but um, so it's not a huge concern. Um, this is mostly in, in, inflicted on like or impact. This mostly impacts people investing in self-directed IRAs. If you invest through like a self-directed four hundred one k or a solo four hundred one k, you're usually not subject to UBIT because it's exempt. So that's something to kind of keep in mind there. Now I'm saying that when you are subject to UBIT, you do have to pay. Uh, you do have to file this form nine ninety t, which is a which is painful to find somebody who can actually file that form to, for you. Um, it's not something so easily. You can easily file yourself, and then there's a lot of CPAs out there that either don't file them or are going to charge you an arm and a leg to file them, and uh, it can easily, that form, the compliance fees, can start eating into your returns. So it's just something to be mindful of. Now, again, I have nothing wrong with self-directed IRAs. My personal philosophy on this is that if you, is I look at real estate as a tax advantage vehicle. Uh, you could uh, reduce the, you could like minimize or pay no income tax on the rental income that's generated thanks to depreciation. And there's ways to minimize the capital gains tax on sale. So I prefer to invest in those on in outside of retirement accounts for those reasons and keep other investments like stocks, for example, um, in IRAs where they're not, where it's harder to shelter those types of income from tax. So that's my personal philosophy on it. But I've seen a lot of clients who will have a lot of money in retirement accounts want to diversify. Some of them want to go liquidate their retirement accounts, and sometimes you're, pay, you're you'll be paying like you know, if you between if you're in the higher tax brackets, you're, you're paying federal taxes, you're paying a ten percent penalty, and then state taxes. So it's not uncommon to see people paying forty to fifty percent of their four hundred one k account in tax to try to liquidate. I'd rather see someone self direct in that instance. Um, rather than take that type of hit, but so it depends on everybody's situation. But uh, in in a kind of a nutshell, that's that the UBIT's not that usually not that impactful on someone's situation. It doesn't hurt that much. So if you have an option between self-directing or liquidating, self-directing is from at least a tax perspective usually the better way to go. Okay, yeah, I appreciate that perspective. My frustration when I first learned about UBIT years ago was exactly like you said, finding someone who could prepare a 990T for a reasonable price. That was actually difficult to do. I ultimately did it, but the the headache was really the problem more so than the UBIT itself or anything right, like that. Right, it was right. just the, the hassle <laughs> was really the, the right. problem there. So Right. You know you know what's really interesting though? Like the CPA that I used to, so before I was working in an accounting firm and all that stuff, I actually had, uh, I was in an investment where the CPA who prepared the partnership tax return actually prepared the 990Ts for the investors who invested as a limited partner through a, a an IRA. So that was really interesting, but not many people do that. But I, I just throw a tip. Maybe maybe there's that's something for sponsors out there that you might be able to offer or you might be able to talk to your CPAs about to offer as a service for limited partners. I don't know. That's interesting. I wonder where, if there's like a a conflict of interest there or how that would work from a you know compensation of the CPA standpoint. I've never heard of that happening. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't quite recall how that how that worked on, on their side. I just know that I'd get the K1 and they'd send me the 990 T2 and I was just like, okay, you know, thank you. Like, I don't have to worry about this one less thing I have to worry about, right? So Yeah, I would probably go for that given, given the opportunity. Like I said, the hassle is really my biggest issue with it personally. Well, but uh, well, yeah, you know, another thing just along the same lines though is state tax returns, right? State tax yes. returns are very common and it's another compliance cost. Some people do composite tax returns, some groups. So, and composite tax returns, basically you don't have to, each individual partner does not have to file the state return. So I don't know, I guess I, it, it, it would make, it kind of makes sense for, in my, in my mind, put it all under that one umbrella, have pay as the sponsor, pay a little bit more for those, you know, to, to get it done on behalf of your limited partners. Awesome. Well, a lot of big topics we covered here today. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for a sponsor. Tracking your rental property business no longer needs to be a hassle. Stessa, a new financial technology company, helps real estate investors just like you take their real estate rental portfolio to the next level by automating the financials of their rental property portfolio. You can get started with just 20 bucks a month to take your rental business to the next level by tracking your properties, automatically collecting rent, tracking your expenses, and so much more. Using technology can take so much of the hassle out of owning a rental property portfolio. So check out Stessa today by using our link in the description and you can get started for free or upgrade to their pro package for just $20 a month. This type of software can save you a ton of time. Go check out Stessa today by using our link in the show notes. Now back to the show. All right, Thomas, I've got three questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. Are you ready? Yep, I'm ready. Great. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? The number one book recommendation right now is going to be 10X is Easier Than 2X by Dan Sullivan and Dr. Ben Hardy. Big eye-opening book. It's about doing less, focusing more on your core tasks and delegating the rest. It's kind of like they built up this book uh, on the foundation of two other books they wrote, Who Not How and uh, the gain in the gap or gap in the game mm-hmm. and uh 10 is easier than 2x i just just read it and i'm going to reread it again before the end of the year as i start to prep for 2024 planning so love it i've heard great things about 10x is easier than 2x but i haven't read that quite yet so great recommendation question number two who or what inspires you yeah that's a, that's a great question um growth. Uh, I think growth in general uh, inspires me. So when I see people who are ahead of where I am at in my journey to see that people are there and it's possible, uh, that inspires me. To give specific people at this point, it's kind of tough because I kind of take from different people to kind of uh, based on what my interests are. So like Alex Hermosi on like the marketing and sales front. And you have guys like um, uh, Jake and Gino um, and just a lot of other people kind of like I just take little bits and pieces of what they're doing to kind of as inspiration for what I'm doing. So love it. Question number three, think about Thomas at 80 years old. What advice would 80 year old Thomas give to Thomas of today? Yeah, I would say take them, just take the shot, man. That's what I give my my advice. Like I I tend to, um, I I tend to uh, get stuck in analysis paralysis at times and not make decisions that I know I should. And then eventually I'll make those decisions and just say, wow, if I should just done that a year ago, I should just done that six months ago. And sometimes things just kept getting put off. So uh, at this point in my early thirties, I'm just like, just go for it. Like you're not getting any younger, man, go for it. So if I was 80 years old, I would tell my younger self, 
take that shot, man. Uh, you don't want to be sitting here and having not took that shot. So love it. Thomas, thanks for joining us today and sharing all this knowledge. If folks want to get in touch, where can they track you down? Yeah, absolutely. The Probably the best place to get in touch with me uh, would be we have a Facebook group. Uh, it's Tax Smart Investors on Facebook. I'm in there answering questions, uh, talking with people all the time. So it's a great community. Or if you're looking for a new CPA, uh, we are we are accepting clients, therealestatecpa.com slash Thomas. And uh, we'll, we're happy to, to learn more about your situation, how we can help. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so, so much. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one.